you turn to Romans 1, beginning verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we do just pray that as we look into your word that you would continue to look into us by the power of your spirit, that you might examine our hearts and help us, Lord, to understand what it is that Paul is communicating here to the church at Rome. And Lord, ultimately what you, by the power of your spirit, through your apostle, what you are communicating to us. Lord, I thank you for the sovereignty of your grace and your love that we see in this passage. I pray that we might understand it rightly. Or that we might submit our hearts to it and that we might rejoice in God our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. So why do we come up with names for things? We do, right? We always come up with a name for something. You know, for example, for people, we come up with names for our children. We see that pattern actually in the Bible also. God even came up with names for people, right? Abram, which means exalted father. His name was changed to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And as the children of Abraham in the gospel, we see that fulfilled. He's the father of many nations. There's a purpose for his name. God puts out names for himself to tell us something about himself. So we see this go on all the time. I know that Mark and Holly picked a name for their son, right? And there was a purpose behind it, right? Because of a person whom they esteemed, especially his theology, correct? Two people you esteemed. And so they picked this name for a reason. Well, sometimes the name is supposed to mean something specific. And sometimes we actually come up with names that are opposites, right? We name something um, that doesn't make any sense at all. For example, we call a fat guy tiny. Isn't that right? Or we call a bald guy guy curly. Or we name something like um, pornography adult entertainment. And then to take it even further, we say it's for mature audiences only. (laughs) The point is that we give names in order to say something about what we're naming. We do that for a purpose. And I'm always asked the question, why Sovereign Grace Church? Why did you name this church Sovereign Grace Church? Um, I remember specifically why. Clint and I were standing on my driveway. Do you remember Clint? And the, this guy said, what are you guys going to name your church? We were talking to a named Darren Holbert. And we said, what are you guys going to name the church? And we both kind of kicked around this name Sovereign Grace Church immediately. But then we didn't really say much about it. And Clint went home and asked Mary. And, and Mary said, hey, call it Sovereign Grace Church. Clint came back and it was kind of a no-brainer for us. We knew automatically that we ought to call it Sovereign Grace Church. Why? Because we understood that we wanted this to be a church 
that was full, that understood that it was a church that was full of a bunch of sinful, depraved people who needed the grace of God and Jesus Christ desperately. Not a church full of a bunch of self-righteous people who thought they were good on their own merit and that God somehow needed them. We wanted the opposite to be understood. We recognized that we're not worthy and can do nothing. We recognize that. Instead, we're a group of people blessed by the magnificent, sovereign love and grace of God. We are people who can offer God only our sin. That's it. That's all we have to offer Him is our sin. And who are nonetheless received as beloved children of God in Christ. That's an amazing concept. In fact, in all the long bike rides that Clint and I took, um, we had all these bike rides in which we had discussions over a couple of years, and they constantly went around, or the topic was constantly about the sovereign grace of God, our need for Him, and our thankfulness for Christ. And as we started dreaming about planting a church, we thought, man, it was just so natural that that would be the focus in what we named this church. It was so natural for us because we wanted a church that was thankful for Christ and that deeply rejoices in Him. We desire a church that understands that we bring nothing but our sin to God and that He lovingly and sovereignly extends His grace and mercy to us. I want you to hear that. We desire to be a church that understands that it brings nothing but our sin to God and that he lovingly and sovereignly extends his grace to us in Christ. Today, I want to first show you that Paul identified the church in Rome not on the basis of their own goodness, but on the basis of God's sovereign love for them. Second, I want to show you that God's love flowed out in sovereign grace to them. God's love flowed out in sovereign grace to them. And finally, I want you to see that the object, the object of God's sovereign love and grace, as the object of God's sovereign love and grace, I should say, we are gloriously blessed. As the objects of God's sovereign love and grace, we are gloriously blessed. Well, thus far, we've gone through the epistle the introduction of the epistle to Romans written by Paul. And we've seen him describe himself first in verse 1. If you look there, Paul describes himself first as a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So he starts off telling us he's the author. Then he goes on, and as soon as he gets to this word, the gospel of God, he takes off on the word. It's like he's saying, Here, here's who I am. I am set apart for the gospel of God. And then he launches off into what the gospel is. It's like he can't stop. He can't wait to get to the subject. And immediately rushes in. And he tells us that the gospel is not new. It's not new. The gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel is not new news. It is historically new in its fulfillment. But it is not new in promise. It was promised all the way back when the fall happened in Genesis 3.15. When God is pronouncing his curse upon man, at the same time, God pronounces his grace to him. And says, I will send one who will be the seed of this woman. 
and he will crush your head, Satan, and you will bruise his heel. Promising at that point, at the fall, the gospel, the good news. It is not new news, it is good news. And Paul launches off and tells us that right from the beginning. Second, he tells us something else about the gospel, which is that the gospel is Jesus Christ. In other words, it is concerning his son, verse 3. His son is the center of the gospel. He's the focus of the gospel. Jesus is the good news. And he tells us something about him. He tells us he's the eternally pre-existent son of God. He's the true Israel. He's fully man. The promised Davidic Messiah and the suffering servant. And you're wondering how I got that all of this verse where it says, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. If you want to know, go and listen to that sermon. And in verse 4 it says, and he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He tells us that Jesus is fully God, the exalted Lord who's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, and who has authority over all things. I mean, that's what Paul does. He gets the gospel and launches off in this magnificent vision of who Christ is. So he starts off with the fact of a description of himself, which interestingly is what? I'm owned by God, called by God, set apart for God. Oh, by the way, that I'm set apart for the gospel of God. And what the gospel of God? It's this magnificent vision of Christ that was promised all the way back in Genesis and continues all the way through and is now fulfilled in Him. And that's the good news. That's what my life is all about. And then He tells us that that leads Him right into His purpose, which is, He says in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. He's received the grace of God not only into salvation, but unto good works. He's received the grace of God in an empowering way that lets him step out and be empowered for the ministry that he has. And the ministry that he has is supposed to lead to bringing about the obedience of faith in all the nations for the sake of his name. And so he tells us supremely his purpose, supremely Paul's mission, his purpose is to make Christ's name known in all the nations and to see all the nations obediently submit in faith to him. It's his purpose. And why? Because God is supremely passionate that his name be known in all the nations and that all the nations obediently trust him. And because God is passionate about that, Paul is passionate about that. And he goes off and he says this in verse 6, starting to identify now the church at Rome. So he's identified himself. He's identified kind of this vision of what the gospel is and who Christ is. He's identified his purpose and what drives him, his mission. And now he identifies his audience, the recipients of the letter, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome, who are loved by God. That's the you in verse 6. Loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, as we turn to Paul's description of the church in Rome, I want you to notice first the similarities of Paul's description of himself with his description of the church in Rome. Look what he says in verse 1. First thing he says about himself is Paul. And then he goes on, he says this, a servant of Christ Jesus. What does he tell you? First and foremost, my master is Christ. 
I'm owned by, I belong to Christ. This is the word doulos, is a bond slave. I am owned by Christ Jesus. And I'd love to spend more time on that concept, but you can go and listen to the, the sermon on the humility and honor of being a slave. He understands that he's owned by Christ. That's what he says. And look what he says next. Called to be an apostle. And actually the fra- exact phrase is called an apo- or called apostle. A called apostle. Then he says, set apart for the gospel of God. So he's a servant. Or he's owned by Christ. He's called to be an apostle. And he's set apart for the gospel. If you go down to verse 6, he then starts to identify the church of Rome. And he says this including you talking about the church in Rome, who are called to what? Belong to Jesus Christ. Just like I'm owned by Jesus Christ, you are owned by Jesus Christ, church. Just like I am set up, excuse me, I am called to be an apostle, you are called to be saints. I'm called and so are you. One step further, just like I'm set apart, that word saint there, is the word hagios, is to be set apart. Just like he's set apart in the gospel of God, the church is set apart to God. Set apart for God. And so Paul supremely understands one thing. I mean, probably more than anything else, he communicates one thing in this introduction. It's all about Jesus Christ and it's not about us. Everything I have to tell you about me about the gospel, about my purpose, and about you is centered in the character of God. And that's glorious. And he wants us to get a hold of that. The whole focus is on God. You see, that's why we are called Sovereign Grace Church. Because we want to be identified by the goodness of God and by the work of God and not by anything in ourselves. I don't want you to forget the overall focus of this passage. It begins with Christ and it ends with Christ and Christ is the center of it. He's the focus of it and the purpose of it. He is the reason for Paul's gospel. So I want to deal first with Paul's description that we are loved by God in verse 7. I want to start there because it's the love of God which is the fountain from which all of his grace flows. All the other blessings of God flow from the love of God, from that fountain. So I want to start there. John Calvin actually commenting on the passage wrote this. Paul does by no means ascribe the praise of our salvation to ourselves. But derives it altogether from the fountain of God's free and paternal love towards us. For he makes this the first thing. God loves us. And what is the cause of his love? Except his own goodness alone. You see, Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, what? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's death, Christ's sacrifice, the grace of God towards us in Christ flows out of this fountain of God's love. He doesn't come to the church in Rome and say to the church in Rome or all those in Rome, all those in Rome who love God, comes to those and says, all those in Rome who are Loved by God. In fact, that word could also be translated who are the beloved. A word frequently used for Israel in the Old Testament. And also used for one supremely in the New Testament. Who is that? Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved. 
at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved. In fact, in Ephesians 1, which we'll turn to later, he says that we are given grace in the beloved, whom is Christ. And ultimately, we are God's beloved in Christ. What blows me away is that Paul's focus is not on our love for God. It's on his love for us. He loves us because he sovereignly chooses to. He loves us because it's in his character to do so. He loves us because he desires to do so. Martin Luther said of God's love, that God's love is the only love that creates the objects of his love. It's the only love that creates its objects. Think about that. God is so loving that he creates the objects of his love. His love for us is not grounded in how lovable we are. It's grounded in how loving he is. And that's our assurance. That's our assurance. If it was grounded in how lovable we are, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? But it's grounded in his good character, his infinite love, which is our great blessed assurance, is it not? God's love is so profound that it creates the objects of his love. It blows me away. I just sat this week and just meditated on that. And the fact that Paul's identifier for us, when he turns to his audience of his letter, he turns to them and says, to those who are in Rome who are loved by God. So if this is the case, why does he only call those who are believers the beloved? See, that's the question that's now begged, isn't it? He only calls the saints, the believers, the beloved. He doesn't call everybody in Rome the beloved. There are millions of people in Rome. And when he writes this letter, he says, to those who are in Rome, those who are loved by God. Not everybody in Rome is he referring to here. He's only referring to his church. Or the believers specifically, those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ in verse 6. Those who are called to be saints. Following this in verse 7. Why not call all people in Rome the beloved? And doesn't God love all people? See, that's the problem that's now presented, isn't it? I would answer that yes. Yes, God loves all of his creation. Yes, he does. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. They gave his only begotten son. Why did he give his son, though? So that whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. But he loves the world. Matthew 5 is probably more specific. There's this general love that God has for the whole world. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. In fact, a ground of his command comes out of one, us wanting to be his children or be like him. And in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43, he talks about his general love for all people. 
Obviously, in John 3.16, he does. And then in Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 43, he says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Do you hear that? You want to be sons of your father who is in heaven? Love your enemies. Why? Because that's what he does. Go on. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Point is that God does send his common grace, his common love to all men. All of them. He does. However, God has a special love for his church. God has a special love for his church or for his bride or for his elect. He has a special love for them. A sovereign love that issues in him making a covenant to save his people. We've been chosen in the beloved. Uh, And I want to stop and help you get a hold of this. He has a general love for all of mankind. That's true. But is he a special love for his church? I have a general love for all women. But I have a special love for my wife. You understand the difference there? God is the same way. He has a general love for all of man, but he has a special love for his bride. It's a love that issues in salvation, in effectual calling, which is what we're going to talk about next. It's a love that is supremely found in his beloved, whom is Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is talking about being predestined by God to salvation. And after he talks about us being predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of the will, he says this in verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, speaking about God's glorious grace, and then he goes on, he says this. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's speaking of Christ. We've been blessed with the grace of God In the beloved. So someone may say, is it because of some merit in Tyler that Tyler's elect or some merit in Jason that Jason's elect or some merit in Holly that Holly's elect that she's part of the bride or that he's part of the bride of Christ? No, it's because of the merit in Christ. And if they're in Christ, they are part of the beloved, given grace in the beloved. God sets his affection on his beloved and through his beloved extends grace to those who are of us who are in him. And we're elect in him, by the way. We're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. To be holy and blameless. 2 Thessalonians 2. If you look there quickly. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Paul's giving thanks for the church at Thessalonica. And he says this. But we, also, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Listen, God has extended a special grace to his beloved in the church, a special love for them. God's sovereign electing love is what leads to his sovereign grace in calling us and separating us or setting us apart. Do you understand that? He has set his love and affection upon his bride. And out of that love issues forth his grace and his calling to save them. Paul not only says they are loved by God, the church at Rome, he also says they're what? Called by him. Called to belong to him and called to be saints. So what is calling? And isn't everyone called to believe? Everyone's called to believe, aren't they? Well, the answer to this is that there's two types of callings in Scripture. Two types of calling in Scripture. Not only two types of love, there's two types of calling. God loves in a general way and God loves in a special way for his church. But he also calls in a general or universal way. And he calls in an effectual way. And I want to help you get a hold of that. Don't be too concerned by the terms. It's really not as complicated as it might sound. He calls in a general way or the universal call or offer of the gospel. This type of calling is more like the invitation. It's the external work of preaching the word to all men. Right? We are all called to preach the word to who? All men. Is that right? That's the external work that we do. This is the universal call or the universal offer or invitation of the gospel. All men everywhere are commanded to believe in the gospel and repent of their sins. All men everywhere are promised that if they believe and repent, they will be saved. All men everywhere are warned that if they do not believe, then they are justly condemned in their sins. You guys hear that? All men, every single individual one. So does God just throw a plan out there then? Does he just throw a plan out there? I'm going to send Jesus, have him die on the cross, and I'm going to sit back in heaven and hope upon hope that some people will have enough wisdom to choose salvation. Is that what he does? No, in fact, the scripture is clear that God does not leave us to our own devices. And I am so thankful for that. He does not leave his elect to their own free will. Because if he did, we would be damned. Period. On our own, we are dead in our sins. These are all things scripture says, by the way. On our own, we are enemies of Christ. We cannot discern the things of the Spirit. On our own, the gospel is foolishness to us. On our own, no one seeks God, no, not one. No one is righteous. Together, they have become worthless. Those aren't good statements about us. And left to ourselves in that condition, we would be damned. Thank God that he doesn't leave us to ourselves. So why do some men believe and others reject? Is it because they are more righteous or more intelligent or better decision makers? Or is it just dumb luck? 
This is where we come to the sovereign grace of God. Because of his great love for us, God has sovereignly extended his grace to his elect. He has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, as Peter says. This kind of calling we call effectual calling. It's what Paul's referring to here in Romans 1. Effectual calling. Effectual because it's effective. In other words, it accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent out. God calls men and he accomplishes it. When we talk about this kind of calling, we are talking about the internal work of the Spirit in applying the Word of God that we externally preach to men so that they might be saved. In other words, there is an external work, which is the universal offer of the gospel, that we all participate in to all men. And there is the internal work of the Holy Spirit, which is the effectual calling of God, in which the Spirit changes the hearts of men so that they are no longer dead in their sins, but they're alive to God. So that they're not no longer think the word or the gospel is foolishness, but they think it's wisdom. So they no longer have hearts of stone, so they have hearts of flesh. That's the internal work of God by His Spirit. We call it an effectual calling, which leads in to this other doctrine called regeneration or being born again. We are changed and we're born again. And now we see the glory of God that our eyes have been blinded from in 2 Corinthians 4. Our eyes have been blinded from the light of the glory of the, right, of the gospel, the glory of Christ. And now we see it because our eyes have been opened by God. We're no longer blind. This is God's sovereign, electing, enlivening grace. It's what takes us from dead men to those who are alive together with Christ. Look with me at Romans chapter 8, because I I just don't need to claim this. I need to show you in the Bible. Look with me at Romans chapter 8, and I'll give you a short case for it. I can make an extremely lengthy case for it, but um, you'll be here most of the night or the week. or So I'll just give the short version. Starting in chapter 8, verse 29. I want you to pay attention, uh, especially to um, the way the language is used here. And I don't want you to slip on it. Um, So I'm going to try to go slow on these Three verses. For those whom he foreknew. Now I want you to notice something. Those whom he foreknew. Not the behaviors or the choices of those he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. The people he foreknew. Now we're going to stop and go, wait a minute. Those whom he foreknew. Look at the next one. He also predestined. So all the people he foreknew, he also predestined. Well, doesn't God foreknow everything? And everyone? Yes. That's why we completely misunderstand the the nature of the word foreknowledge in this verse if we think it means God's omniscience or his knowledge of all things. Because he knows all things, yet he does not look at the next verse. He does not. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We know that not everyone is predestined to be conformed to the image of his son because there are lots of unbelievers who are dying and going to hell. 
But yet everyone he foreknew, he also predestined. Foreknowledge here is actually a word that speaks more of knowing in the Hebrew sense when Adam knew his wife. We all know what that means, right? God knows his people. He foreknows his people. It speaks of a fatherly care or love for his people. He foreknows them, those whom he foreknew, all those whom his fatherly love or care was set upon, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And look what it goes on. It says this, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Now listen, everyone he foreknew, every single one he foreknew was predestined. And every single one of those people was called. And every single one of those people was justified. And if you continue to go, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, everyone God foreknew, God also glorified eternally in heaven with him. Every single one. So it cannot be talking about this general omniscience of God, knowing what everybody's going to decide. No, it is speaking of God's electing work. His fatherly care and love to redeem his own. He does not lose one. By the way, that's your great assurance. If he foreknew you before the beginning of time, he cannot lose you. He will not lose you. He goes on, but I'll turn you to 1 Corinthians 1 just so I can show you a couple other scriptures on this same Vain. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in... Well, I'll just read verse 9 quickly. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Hear that? God is faithful. Not you were faithful. Not I was faithful. God was faithful. Or God is faithful. By whom? By who are we called? We were called by God. Called by God into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Go on down to verse 22 of chapter 1. He's speaking about where the debaters and the wise and the cetera, and he goes on to these Jews and he says, and the Greeks, and he says this, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. I want you to hear this. Why is it a stumbling block to Jews? Because... It's a stumbling block that their Messiah would die. Why is it folly to Gentiles? Because it seems stupidity, like stupidity to the Greek mind. Oh, yeah, right, sure, this man's God of all things, and he rose from the dead, whatever, yeah, you know. He's the king crucified. Who believes in that kind of garbage? That's the Greek mind. It's foolishness to them. By the way, Jews and Greeks, in Paul's talk here, means everybody. Talking about all classes of people. To the Jews, stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. And look what he says in verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who are called, he's the wisdom of God. Goes down in verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. This describes us, by the way, very well. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He, He, God, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Could that be much clearer? Turn with me to 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1. I've read this passage several times, actually, in the course of these sermons. Don't you hear it? Starting in verse 8, Paul's talking to Timothy, and he says to him, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And listen, God, what did God do? Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He called us and gave us grace in Christ according to his own purpose, not because of anything that's good about us before the ages even began. And I'm going to finish this section here on Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Because I want you to see how the love of God flows into the grace of God in which he brings us from death to life. So clearly portrayed in this passage. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, now listen, because of the great love with which he loved us. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. So God calls us to what? I mean, that's the next logical question. What does he call us to? Salvation, yes. Or does he call us also to something more? Is it only salvation? Or is it something more? If you look at chapter 1, verse 6 of Romans, we know that he calls us to be the possession of Christ, to belong to him, to be his, his servants. And in verse 7 of chapter 1 of Romans, he says that he calls us to be specifically what? Saints. I said earlier that the word saints means to be set apart. So we're called to be Christ's. 
And second, we're called to be his saints or to be set apart for him. It's similar to the grammatical structure of verse 1 where Paul says he's called to be an apostle. God has divinely declared something of, of us that we are not. See, when God called Paul to be an apostle, Paul was going to kill Christians and imprison them. And God came and called him out and said, you are now going to take the gospel of my son to the nations. Paul did nothing in that. Nothing. And it's very similar for us when God calls us to be saints. God doesn't come to us and say, you know, you're looking pretty moral. Pretty holy and pretty good. I think I'm going to call you a saint. That isn't how it happens. God says something about us that is so radically untrue, it's mind-boggling. How radically untrue is it that we are saints? We are holy. No, God takes wretched people like me and like you and calls us saints. That's what he does. And the focus here is not on ethical living. It's not an ethical living, but it's on a positional change by which we now belong to God. We've been set apart to be his. We've been set apart to be his, which is true both from a negative standpoint in the sense that we've been set apart from something, from worldliness and sin. We've been set apart from something. It's the negative sense of being set apart. But predominantly, the point here is that we are set apart to something. We are set apart to or for God. Paul's emphasis is not on the fact that we're set apart from the world, although that's true. His emphasis here is on the fact that we are set apart for God. We belong to Jesus Christ. We are His, and our lives are given to His service. This is not a term for some special person in the history of the church. It's not a term for some person that we make statues of and burn candles under and venerate. Or that we put on stained glass windows. That's not what this term is about. Paul would have been appalled to be called a saint in the way that Rome now refers to saints. Would have been appalled by it. Now this is a term reserved for all believers. Clive Thexton says this, When Paul writes to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, he is writing not to people likely to figure in stained glass windows. Instead, he's writing to a somewhat motley collection of shopkeepers, minor civil servants, converted prostitutes, prize fighters, and slaves. These are the people God called to be his holy ones. You and I may not live lives that are worthy of being on a stained glass window. In fact, I'm confident none of us have. But Jesus did. And in him we are saints. In him we are saints. That's that's what Paul means here. He means that wretched people like you and me who despised and turned from God People like you and me who sin in ways we would never want anyone to know. People are so concerned with their self and consumed with their self that we constantly ignore God. 
Paul says to them, in Christ, you are saints. You are holy ones. You are set apart for God's special use. Why? Not because of anything in us, but because Jesus was sinless and Jesus was majestic and Jesus was glorious. That's why. And God's love provoked him to extend this promiscuous grace to us and to call us to belong to Jesus Christ. That's why. And as the objects of God's sovereign love and grace, we are gloriously blessed. Gloriously blessed. In fact, Paul concludes his introduction to the Romans by saying, grace, and pe- grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Typically, an introduction to a, a letter, if you had the introduction to the letter, typically it would end in the first century. It would close with this. Paul would say all these things, you know, here's who I am. Here's what I can, you know, kind of writing about maybe briefly. Here's who I'm writing to. And at the end, after they'd say, here's who we're writing to, they would say this, greetings. And that was it. That is the typical first century end to an epistolary introduction. Greetings. It's not what Paul says. Paul says, grace to you and peace. Why? Because Paul's taking the blessing that belonged to the people of God in the Old Testament and applying it to the people of God in the New Covenant. He's saying God has always worked the same way. God has always worked to give grace and peace to his people. Always. Look at Numbers. If you can go there, probably one of the least read books in your Bible. If you're anything like the rest of the church. Right after Leviticus, I mean, Leviticus has got to be the least read book of the Bible, right? Or pretty darn close. Maybe Lamentations. People even forget that book is even in there. But in Numbers chapter 6, starting in verse 22, God tells Moses to tell Aaron that there is a blessing that Aaron is supposed to give to Israel. Aaron's supposed to give this blessing to Israel. Look at how familiar it is to this, or similar it is to Paul's grace and peace to you. Starting in verse 22 of chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall say, or excuse me, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Grace is the unmerited kindness of God to us. It's the unmerited kindness of God to us. And only through that grace can we receive peace, which is the reconciliation between God and us and us and other men. So Paul says to the church, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a blessing that he hoped the church might receive. It's a blessing that he knew was a promise to God's people. 
That's why he speaks it. He knows it's a promise to you and to me. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows that we are so blessed in Christ. He understands it. So what do we say to all of it? I think we ought to say to it the same thing that Paul does. And so I'm going to turn you back to Romans and finish in Romans 8. This is what Paul says to this abundant blessing and grace of God that comes out of this overflow of God's love toward us. Starting in verse 31, he says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famineness or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Might we be a church that is not self-righteous, but that instead glories in the sovereign love and grace of God that is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you are so glorious. We thank you for Paul and the work that you did in his life how radically God-centered he was and Christ-centered he was, how radically dependent he was upon you and how he understood your grace so well. Lord, how you prepared him before he was born and took him through a life of wretchedness and self-righteousness only to break him and show him his need for you and that it doesn't depend upon him but only your goodness Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for the way that your spirit superintended his writing to bring that message of your gospel across. And how he understood that all of us, like him, are sinners, desperately depraved and in need of grace. The grace of God that is available only in Christ Jesus. Lord, the grace of God that you shed upon us in Christ because of your great love for us. Let us trust in that and rejoice in that. Be thankful always.
In Jesus' name, amen.